I just got a text from my husband. Apparently, I was supposed to take dinner out of the freezer. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I'm in trouble. Oh, no. I, I mean, those sound like fighting words. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I'm going to die. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. Well, let's get this done quickly. This is super exciting. This is Minnesota Opera's podcast, all about opera and classical music from the perspective of three beautiful folks of color, black folks. Uh, I am one of those beautiful black folks. <laughs> <laughs> and my name is Rocky Jones, and I'm the EDI director here at Minnesota Opera. And as usual, I'm here with the lovely and talented Paige Reynolds, our civic engagement manager. Hello. And back from the hinterlands, <laughs> it is our vice president of Impact, Mr. Lee Bynum. Welcome back to the show, friend. Gracias. It's good to be back. Well, we we are happy to have you. Frankie is, is fantastic, but we missed you and you, your Aww. dulcet tones. <laughs> Essential dulcet tones. <laughs> so how are both of you i feel like you know we you were out of town last time and we had to record remotely with frankie Mm -hmm. and so i feel like i haven't like been in the same room as the two of you in like a month six weeks yeah been a minute since we've been in the closet together (laughs) (laughs) so how how is everyone how how are we adjusting to the onset of your first minnesota winter perhaps (laughs) I'm working on it. <laughs> I don't love it yet. Um, I don't know. Well, we still haven't had the, the first snowfall. Yeah, I don't know if that's going to help. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it'll be magical and Christmassy. As long as I'm inside and the snow is outside, I yes. think that's a... That's the start. Well, that's of usually how it works. Oh, boy, do I hope so. <laughs> well, you know, until like you know, you bring it in with your boots and stuff like that. Oh Jesus! There's that. There's that. There's that. There's that. The constant wiping of feet on the <laughs> on the rug when you get inside. Uh, yeah. The constant threat of slipping and breaking a hip. Yeah. That's the part I'm not looking forward to. Mm-hmm. The the negotiating sidewalks. Yeah. Yep. 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 Learn how to do what I call the penguin walk. Yes. Uh, sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> and it's so weird because like, like, like I feel like at the like after the first snowfall or whatever, like, you just start to like do it naturally, and it's like, oh, that's right. This is what my body does. Yep. Like, yep. Yeah. You just start like, to just waddle. That little waddle <laughs> side to side, little shuffle, like like you're like you're like. 
like your your pants are around your ankles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of look like a stop motion claymation character. <laughs> the way I'm awkwardly walking. And... But it's just like like my like the muscle memory. It just comes back every winter. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Although I think being uh, if you're in a place where you're near the river. When I need a like a change of perspective, sometimes just going and looking at how pretty it is, mm. and then you then you scurry back inside to where there's the heat. <laughs> but you know, if you need a second to just be like, okay, I'm in my feelings, and I need to remember this is also beautiful in some way. Then you know, you know, walk over, <laughs> walk over to the Mississippi, and I think it helps. <laughs> I find what helps is the Como Park Conservatory. Ooh, yeah, because yeah. like. What's that? It is, um, I guess it's a, I guess it's just a, a really big greenhouse mm-hmm. um, in St. Paul, and it's in this beautiful park, and it's connected to the zoo, um, uh. but it's like the one place in uh, the Twin Cities that's like 90 degrees year-round, and I have chocolate <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's like hot and humid, and you can just walk through it and just be like, okay, I'm going to take off this jacket, <laughs> look at these palm trees, mm-hmm. and just like remember that this, this isn't going to last forever. <laughs> yep. I am going to do just that, then. I will <laughs> look into this greenhouse. I do love a good greenhouse, so... Thank you for that tip. You are quite welcome. You're quite welcome. <laughs> well, it's not winter yet, fortunately. You there's sure? Still some, well, there's still some leaves on the tree. I don't know. I was saying earlier, I already had to switch to my uh, winter moisturizer because uh, uh, the air is getting drier. So mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. I think she's here. Well, yeah. But, I mean, we did get a few more weeks than usual. Usually, like, all the leaves are off the trees, you know, yeah. by, like, the first week of October. So thank you, <laughs> global warming (laughs) (laughs) we actually got a fall this year it was a nice fall 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 but i know this past weekend you were outside having a fun fall I with was. Million Artists Movement. Oh, well, we were actually indoors for Oh, that. I thought you were outside. No, we were, we were indoors over Zoom. We did uh, a couple times a year. We do something we call boot camps, but are meant to, for uh, political education for artists. Mm-hmm. So uh, because what we do is like at the intersection of arts and politics, we take these times to like kind of reground ourselves or do some more learning of topics mm-hmm. we want to dig further into. There's been ones on disability justice. There's been ones on uh, all, all kinds of stuff. But this year we're really focused on black and indigenous solidarity. And so we read a really great article together about that and talked about it. Um, and we heard from Dr. Chris Matanumpa, who is a Dakota elder and scholar and um, truth teller who comes with receipts and uh, recently released a book called um, The Great Evil, Christianity, the Bible, and Native American Genocide. Oh, snap. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is intense. It is also uh, well-researched and, again, coming with receipts. Just so, that title. Hello? Ooh, okay. Hello? I love him because he's very much, like, at the stage of his life where he's, like, 
and, and he'll pretty much say this straight up like I ain't got that much longer here I don't care <laughs> like, <laughs> I will say whatever and yes I want you all to go and tell them exactly what I said and shout it from the rooftops yes post this on YouTube post this on Facebook put it on your Twitter on your Instagram I want everybody to know and he comes I, in like the vixen like I'm here to fight <laughs> 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 pretty much pretty much so we listened to some i mean it was like difficult you know truths to hear but really really good conversation oh yeah, yeah. that sounds awesome no that mm-hmm. sounds fantastic mm-hmm. absolutely yeah so that was my that was my weekend how about y'all oh oh i also got a tattoo you got a tattoo? <laughs> oh, of what? Oh, yeah. It's on my arm right here. Oh. Oh, that's so pretty. Oh, that's yeah, nice. Yeah. Um, for y'all who can't see, it's like a rose um, with some leaves around it inside of what looks like almost like a glass perfume bottle type, type shape. And the artist I got it from... Uh, her name is Jen. She's based here in the Twin Cities, and her business was called Jen and Juice. Uh, <laughs> Jen and Juice Tattoos. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. Like such a good experience. Oh, like nice. I love it when you can also vibe with the person. And that's a big piece. That must have taken yeah. a while. It took it took a while, but you know she was also speedy to do this wonderful, mm-hmm. good job. Mm-hmm. I thought it would take longer than it did. So. This was actually a design that like she came up with and I saw it on Instagram because I follow a bunch of tattoo artists and I was really drawn to it and was like, huh, even though I didn't come up with that myself, like I, I want it. I was just really drawn to it. And I was telling my older sister about it and she was like, well, you know, our grandma, um, this grandma passed before I was born, had like a really beautiful rose garden. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm drawn to the roses because of grandma. And then (laughs) when I showed her the finished project, she was just like, oh, yeah, like the glass vial reminds me of like the different like crystals, crystal things like bowls and uh, jars and stuff that she would have around the house. And I was like, oh, okay, this must have been. Aww. Yeah, inspiration like from grandma. So and that's really, it's really it. pretty. Thank you. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah. That's really pretty. She did such a good job in adding like the white highlights mm-hmm. for dark skin and whatnot. I was like, okay, you know what you're doing. <laughs> so, yeah, shout out to Jen. Out. <laughs> cool. And we watched Netflix while while she did it. So, <laughs> some show called Lock and Key. This I like, I like Lock and Key. Me too. Yeah. I am a fan now. Yeah. I'm invested. I am very invested. Well, season two is right around the corner. <laughs> So you picked a good time to watch. Okay. Okay. Yep. I'm going to continue. We watched about three episodes while I was sitting there in the chair. Yep. How about y'all? Oh, God. I don't even remember. It feels like the weekend was years ago. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I legitimately don't remember. So I'll talk about something else I did. But I do remember. So yesterday was my husband's birthday. Oh, Oh, yeah. Scorpio season. Scorpio season, indeed. You know it's Scorpio season when you're in a restaurant and you hear from the other side of the room, but it's my birthday! And there were so many people yesterday who were having birthdays at the same restaurant. So we went to Spoon and Stable um, and had a lovely time. We were sitting beside these two absolutely lovely black women um, and they were having the best conversation ever. So we were just like totally in their conversation, just listening to the whole thing. And at the end of it, when they were getting up to leave, 
Damien sort of turns around and was like, hey, we have been in your business all night. (laughs) 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 And we think we should be friends with you because y'all sound kind of amazing. And they were like, we were listening to your conversation. We want to be friends with y'all. So we set up. um, We're going to actually go out with them in like two weeks and just get drinks one day. But this was like literally this instance where we were just kind of thinking about, wouldn't it be great? to just randomly meet a pair of very interesting black people somewhere. And then they literally sat next to us and one of them was having a birthday at the same time as Damien. That's so, wow. like a grown-up adult friendship fantasy. Like, right? <laughs> <laughs> like that's, that never happens. <laughs> never, never happens. And they were, they were just super interesting. So maybe uh, next time we're back at this table, I'll tell you what they did, what we what we got into together. But it was really nice because I have yeah. actually found it a, a little more challenging to meet people here than I was anticipating. Yeah, so yeah. like Absolutely. just speaking it into existence, which we kind of did at the beginning of the meal. And then by the mm-hmm. end of the meal, there they were. So I'm going to try that next time I go out. I, think we should I need to. <laughs> You're lucky you met them right before like the winter lockdown. That's what the one of them lockdown. said, right? True. Yeah. She yeah. was like, you know, this is about to be December and nobody was going to see me for about six to mm-hmm. 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. So we got, we got them right at the right moment. So that was super exciting. That's dope. Yay. Wow. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I am still recovering because this weekend was a mess. Social marathon. Social marathon. We, um, so my husband's niece got married. Yeah. His youngest niece. Um, and so we were in the car on the way to the ceremony. I was like, your youngest niece is getting married. How do you feel? And he was just like, like, don't talk to me. (laughs) But it was, I mean, it was a beautiful weekend, a beautiful ceremony. The whole family was there. And his family is huge and Italian and Catholic, so it was a whole Catholic mass, <laughs> two hours, the whole thing, sit, oh kneel, gosh. stand, sing, y'all love Jesus, yes we do. <laughs> and it's just a kind of amazing, because like, I didn't really grow up you know, in a church setting, so it's just like interesting to for me to see like the choreography and how everybody knows what to do, yeah. and you go up and you like bow before the crucifix and then you give the priest a thing and then he blesses you and then you do the thing and it's just like it's always just so fascinating and just you know obviously we are not really church going people um but then like he like watching him fall back into it and like mm-hmm. you know okay now it's when you kneel <laughs> um but then we had the the um the reception at the a lovely venue in St. Paul and when I tell mm-hmm. you these people were on the floor from the second the band started to play to like two o'clock in the morning, no <laughs> let up. And they were like, come dance with them. I was like, oh my stuff, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, we said. We said we are dancing. <laughs> that is what's happening right now. And just like shots are happening and like, you know, and I was I was surprised by some of the moves that I was seeing. Uh-oh. I was pleasantly surprised. I was like, okay, I can dance with y'all. This is okay. okay. Um, <laughs> on both sides. <laughs> the, the groom and the, the bride side. And then so we went home. Luckily the venue was only ten minutes from our house, so we could just go home. 
Um, and then the next day was the brunch. Everyone come over and have brunch. Mm-hmm. And then um, our friend Jan, who you two met at my reception, mm-hmm. um, her mother was turning 90, so we had to go and to her 90th birthday celebration. <laughs> and then finally we got home around like 6 or 7 in the evening on Sunday, and I was just like, I'm going to sleep for two days. Because <laughs> like, this is too much. I'm 40 years old almost in five weeks, and my feet hurt. I can't remember the last time I put on a pair of dress shoes <laughs> for any reason. <laughs> but it was fun. But it was Aww, fun. And shout out to Katie nice. and Andrew. It was yeah. a beautiful ceremony and may your married life be fruitful and beautiful and all of those wonderful things. To Katie and Andrew. Yes, yes. Yay. Uncle Rock, which is apparently <laughs> 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 So good to see you both. Mm. I'm super excited we're back together again, and we can talk some mess. <laughs> um, because today on the show, we have uh, the fabulous Trevor Bowen coming yeah. up, costume designer extraordinaire. And when we were come right back, we had a, uh, a very interesting article um, come into our consciousness Thanks to Paige um, by George E. Lewis. Um, the eight steps to... Well, let me actually look at it so I get this right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to memorize it. Uh, New Music Decolonization in Eight Difficult difficult Steps by George E. Lewis. And we highly recommend you all uh, check it out because it's very interesting. And we are just going to have a quick chat, chat about it when we come back before we bring on Trevor. So... We'll be back. 30 seconds. Meet us here. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And we are back. Welcome back, everybody. Um, So I had a very interesting experience yesterday. I don't think I've told either one of you about it. (laughs) Um, But I was being interviewed, actually, by a reporter... Um, about some of our EDI work here at the Opera. Um, And it's been a really long time since I I don't want to, I don't want to be a B word. (laughs) 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 Um, But it's been a really long time since um, I've been sort of, I've had to explain the work that we do here to someone who Mm -hmm. is very much uh, not not as familiar <laughs> um, mm-hmm. with some of the the concepts that we are we're talking about, and especially in the context of opera, um, you know, who's you know asking questions very much like, well, let me play devil's advocate. Are you worried that this is going to mm-hmm. alienate some of your existing audiences and things like that? Uh, yeah. You know, and of course, <laughs> you know, I kept my, you know, I kept my, my, my composure, I feel. Um, but, you know, when I get questions like that, especially this idea that, like, you know, unless we're doing very traditional um, productions of Madame Butterfly or Turandot or whatever other problematic opera, 
um, you know, are we going to alienate these existing opera fans? When, of course, the whole point of this is that we are not alienating anyone. We are <laughs> we're widening our net. We're opening up the tent, you know. Mm-hmm. So the point is to not alienate anyone. The point is to bring more people in and present these operas in a much more um, responsible way. Um, but it's it's interesting because... I, I tend to, and we've, we've, all three of us have talked about this at a certain point, but it, it got my mind thinking about this idea of like operas as like museum pieces mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and like, you know, the La Boheme and Traviata and these classic operas and we treat them so often like they're sort of behind glass in mm-hmm. a museum and we must present them in the context in which they were written and we mustn't make any changes to them whatsoever, which I just find so tiresome. You know, why? <laughs> Do we have to? Do we have to? Can we Can we maybe tell some new stories? Can we maybe make some new sounds? Because mm-hmm. when you look back at the history of opera, it's gone through so many different periods. You know, Mozart's opera is completely different than, you know, Verdi's opera, which is completely different than... Terrence Blanchard and what he's doing right now, um, you know, in 2021. And it got me thinking about this idea of decolonization um, and how what we're what we're actually talking about mm-hmm. when we're talking about like the change that we want to make mm-hmm. is really decolonizing um, opera <laughs> and classical music. Um, so that everyone can feel as though their sounds are a part of it. Everyone can feel as though their stories are being told. And what great luck (laughs) 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 that this article um, by Professor George E. Lewis um, dropped into our lap. um, And his um, eight, uh, what he calls, difficult steps um, to decolonize new music. And, you know, I can jump right into those eight steps, you know, moving beyond kinship and investing in new populations, giving up on meritocracy, diversifying school music programs, encouraging ensembles to commission, making decolonization an explicitly foregrounded part of cultural policy, internationalize music curation decisions, uh, encourage media discussions of new music colonization, and of course, changing consciousness, which is kind mm-hmm. of that last one for me is what it's all about. And mm-hmm. what I hope I had a hand in doing um, <laughs> with that reporter yesterday because he he got an earful. <laughs> and we'll see how much of it makes it to publication. <laughs> but just this idea that like he kept saying that like, I was being really idealistic. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, like, that sounds very idealistic. Like, as if I'm, like, you know, a high school sophomore ju- that just told my parents I'm, I'm going to be a vegan. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like the kind of conversation where we had to do a lot of, well, actually, and there, <laughs> a lot of... <laughs> I, there, was, there was definitely one, I think I'm going to have to disagree with you there. <laughs> <laughs> Because I think it's very realistic. Actually, I think, like, in 2021, like, I think there's a very obvious business case to be made. 
Like, mm-hmm. if yeah. we have more butts in the seats and they are liking the product that they're seeing, then they're probably going to come back and give us more money right. and we'll get more donations and we'll get more attention and we'll be able to sponsor, you know, more artists, new artists, new works, all that sort of fun stuff. There's an artistic um, case to be made that the art's just going to get better <laughs> mm-hmm. with more people, um, more stories, and there's just an ethical and moral um, case for Absolutely. it. So I'm just kind of like, no, we just sort of have to do this in 2021 or we're just not going to survive because the population is changing rapidly and young yeah. people are spending their dollars in a way that aligns with their values. So, And if you are under 18 <laughs> in this country and you are a person of color, you are already in the majority. Exactly. Right? And I, I feel like people don't sit enough with the reality that this country is not what it historically has been, right? And I I feel like when when I think about that specific question that you got around, are we alienating audiences, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like it's this idea that if you have always had your experience centered, then anything related to equity is gonna feel like oppression, Mm -hmm. right? And, Mm -hmm. And every time I hear somebody reflecting on the idea of we're pushing out the old audience simply by making more space for people who actually are very interested in experiencing the art form. Like it, I find it a little bit distressing, right? Because it, it feels like it's not overlaid with what's happening in the world today. Mm-hmm. It's like holding on to something that hasn't been true, like demographically for 35 years, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's that's just the place we need to be shifting our attention so that we are building an art form that actually is going to make sense in this country for tomorrow, like literally tomorrow, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, and I think like some folks even frame it as just a next generation kind of thing where it's like there are people now mm-hmm. who have already been like alienated by by just you know the traditional norms whether it be opera or or uh or theater like i i think about like talking with um with uh jenny cresswell one of the creators um part of interstate and how she's like very open in her writing about like being frustrated with traditional roles Mm -hmm. for for women in the Mm -hmm. same stories and you know if it's opera then there there's the whole voice type thing too and what your voice type is expected to play and like that is something that is already like alienating people (laughs) right now like stuff like that is a big reason why I didn't want to get into performance in when it was time for me to apply and audition at schools whether it be for theater or for voice I was just like but ugh, am I gonna be like stuck into the same roles of playing someone's mom or playing like mm-hmm. <laughs> just like never getting to be like a main character with a actually rich or thoughtful story mm-hmm. or a love interest or or something like that like it is it is already has been and will continue to be a problem <laughs> if it if it doesn't change. Like this is something something now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's like it's you know, and we talk about, you know, marginalized communities 
um, so much in, in, in this work and especially like in this topic of this work. But like when I was at the wedding on Saturday, um, a, an old acquaintance of my husband who I'd, I'd never met came up and, and talked to us and we were talking to her for a while. And, you know, she was wearing a very nice, expensive looking dress and a string mm. of pearls and, you know, white woman. Her hair was done, makeup done. She looked great, looked expensive. <laughs> and, you know, she asked me, like, oh, what do you what do you do? And I said, oh, I, I work for Minnesota Opera. And I got that that sort of look <laughs> that, like, you know. I frequently get, you know, where it's like, oh, okay, Mr. Highfalutin Fancy Pants. (laughs) 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 Oh, okay. (laughs) And she's like, oh, wow, okay, cool. And Dennis was like, yeah, it's really cool. Like, I'd I'd actually never seen an opera before he started working there. And, like, I realized that it's actually, like, a really cool art form. And, like, you know, and it's it's really – and she's just, like – literally laughed like oh yeah okay great cool like whatever and it's like if this person (laughs) feels alienated (laughs) by what's happening i can only imagine you know in in communities of color and and you know lgbtq plus folks and so we we've got to do we've got to do better (laughs) Uh, absolutely And, and i think you know the thing that's really compelling about Professor Lewis's article is that he's been very thoughtful in laying out like a lot of attainable steps for organizations and for individuals just to sort of sit in this space and also to make their way through rethinking a lot of it, right? Um, Because I think there's part of this is giving up certain ideals that I think get beaten into our heads as we are growing up in classical music about sort of what is, what can be, what the space has been historically, and what that means that it's supposed to be. And I feel like we lose the sense, um, and I think you were alluding to this earlier, Rocky, that so many of the composers that we hold so dear in the art form, they were writing of their time, Mm -hmm. you know, like really telling stories that are very, very compelling. And the idea that there isn't enough space to do this now is is kind of, it's just strange to me, right, that people don't, that there are as many people who don't believe in the, the medium's capacity to tell contemporary stories and, and to really utilize contemporary forms of music and different kinds of modes of performance to get there. I mean, that's part of why I really enjoyed the miniatures program is because it, mm. it kind of pushes back against this idea that everything has to be about, you know, harpsichords and, and powdered wigs. And, you know, to that point, playing the harpsichord <laughs> in the first round of miniatures, we saw um, Asako Hirabayashi and Rebecca Nicholson, like really turning this idea on its head and speaking in a very contemporary context and in a very familiar form. And I, I love the idea that we can sort of play around and push back in ways that we're seeing in other genres right now. Absolutely. So, you know, I'm thinking, I, do we want to maybe go through um, the article and maybe just touch on some of the things that sort of resonated the most with us, some of the steps? I love resonance. Yeah, Ooh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's actually a quote under number two, which is give up meritocracy. Um, that I want to share because I, I think it's just really, really salient. So I'll read the whole thing. 
what we used to hear is that these kinds of decisions were based on man. Mm -hmm. But in fact, there is no such thing as the best composer. The impact of many years mm -hmm. of fake meritocracy, as well as decades of curatorial commissioning and academic employment and admissions decisions, proceeding from what theorist Bell Hooks has called white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, amounts to an investment in a certain sector of the society and a, con a complementary disinvestment in other segments of the population, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that the thing that you, you kind of can't step away from is the experience of white cisgender heterosexual male com composers has been such that you wouldn't even know that anybody else wrote music you know what <laughs> I mean? like, and i had this very interesting conversation with some folks at american composers forum where they're actually trying to push back around the idea of what a composer is mm. because there's so many queer people women and people of color who don't even feel like they can take the term because it seems so associated with a very specific group right yeah. mm. and the whole apparatus yeah. being having you think that a composer means that you are sitting down in front of a stack of sheet music and you know writing for an orchestra of a particular kind instead of this kind of idea that anybody who's creating in the musical space however they're doing it can share in this title right and i think again we we see this this idea that we we build up concepts in America and say this is the exemplar, right? And mm -hmm. and never stop to acknowledge that the process of building this idea was also constructed on keeping a lot of folks out of a particular definition. Mm -hmm. And you can take kind of anything and you really and, can. Cause yeah. what it, it it immediately brought to my mind was so when I was a kid. I was obsessed with the Oscars because, like, I wanted <laughs> oh, that the Entertainment Weekly Oscar edition was oh my god, <laughs> the best thing ever. Um, but you know, because I I wanted to be an actor, you know, my whole life growing up, and so this was sort of the pinnacle of acting, like the best actor, the best actress. That's mm. that's what they call it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, right. And it's just like you know, obviously, like. As a 39-year-old, you look at that and you're like, one of the nicest byproducts of this pandemic it has been America just completely, or the world really, just completely turning away from award shows. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Such nonsense. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Like a Reese Witherspoon in her dress. Great. <laughs> That's fun. Actually, I'm going to go over here and try not to die from this poison breath disease. Uh, <laughs> um, but one thing that's interesting is that just to, you know, an exam one example of millions but it's just like it's so interesting that like once somebody is nominated for one of those awards or wins you just see them mm -hmm. every year mm -hmm. year after mm -hmm. year after year olivia coleman mm -hmm. won for what was that movie the favorite the favorite yes i watched that on a plane i did too it's <laughs> <laughs> on my list okay. it was okay okay it's good for plane watching yeah Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Next time you're on a plane, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and it was fine. But now Olivia Coleman is just nominated for every single yeah. award, yeah. Emmy, Golden and Globe, and snatching them too, and snatching them yeah. as well. And mm -hmm. it's not to say that she's not deserving, but it's like all of a sudden, like she has been invited to this party, 
everyone who attends these parties like knows mm-hmm. oh there's olivia mm-hmm. oh she's funny oh she's oh, right she's a good actor right oh mm-hmm. did i see the thing she was whatever just vote for olivia it's right. fine <laughs> <laughs> it's like an industrial complex exactly. right like mm-hmm. one, once you are invited into the space there's something self-perpetuating about it and then meanwhile i'm sitting back being like but Angela Bassett, you know. That's exactly, exactly. who I was thinking about. That's exactly who I was going to bring up. <laughs> like, I think of so, there are so many, like, and, and I'm sure every community of color, every ethnicity mm-hmm. has them, but mm-hmm. among black folks, there are so many greats who yes. don't yes. get acknowledged by ever. white folks ever. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think I, I mentioned somebody who, who we all know, like, I, I I feel like it's probably like Taraji P. Henson or something mm-hmm. like that. And of course, we all love her. We know her. Yes. Like, yes. yes, wonderful. But somebody like her, like you ask white folks and they're like, who is that again? Right. Mm-hmm. Who is that? And we're just like, what? You don't know <laughs> who Taraji is? Like, it can feel like living in a whole different world sometimes. But yeah. Like it's based on who like has had an impact on us or who like has been unforgettable or like yep. a part mm-hmm. of our like culture, not just not who's been awarded, you know. Yeah. Did absolutely. you did you ever see um on Twitter the writer Michael Harriet? He I think that probably a year ago, um, he posed a question like who is the most black famous person? Um, and by that I he meant that. like you know that every black person knows <laughs> and no white people know and I believe the winner was Frankie Beverly agree yes yeah I think mm-hmm. that, that that seems right to me yeah yeah I think Kelly Price was on there yeah yeah uh, how is it that and I've been I've honestly been wondering this since like middle school when I first started noticing like it was almost like there was a, a shadow um, set of of like artistic realities and aesthetic realities that we experienced in black households that like my white friends in school didn't and yeah. I think mm-hmm. Kelly Price is a great example it was like a name that was completely decontextualized mm-hmm. or you know Cheryl Lee Ralph mm-hmm. like trying to yeah. triangulate to some of my white friends like Moesha's mom, right? You don't know what that is. Um, <laughs> Dream Girls before the movie came out. Like, this kind of a thing that still seems to exist, right? The whole concept of Black Twitter is that there's a whole set of things that we're talking about that mm-hmm. other people do not have access to, haven't thought to look into, and then kind of when they swoop in, they're fundamentally misreading whatever they're seeing, and then oftentimes parroting it in ways that like make absolutely no sense Mm -hmm. and it's amazing that with all the technology we have this is still like the norm right yeah Mm -hmm. how so many people did not know lift every voice and sing before beyonce put it in her coachella performance Mm -hmm. like you can even, I remember even watching the crowd during that part, like, oh my gosh, do the white people there even know this? <laughs> she is so black for including this. I was living, I was living, but yeah. Well, since uh, Kamala has been sort of in the public eye in the way that she has, one, how much people don't know about the existence of HBCUs is, yeah. is kind of yeah. mind blowing. Um, and then 
the the whole divine nine, right? My dad was an alpha, my mom was an AKA, <laughs> and it's very consistent. Every woman in my family is an AKA, bar none. <laughs> and the number of like thought pieces I've read on like what AKAs are, like in the last year, and it's like <laughs> we've been around a hundred and some years, y'all. But it but yeah. it really is this kind of a thing that mm-hmm. like not only has there not been the investment where there is where there are these elements of black culture they are still frequently unfamiliar i'm imagining seeing the the kappa step show that is in uh fire shut up in my bones must be blowing people's minds at the Mm. met like they must have absolutely no idea the whole history of like what you know the black greek system has meant to actually the creation of the black middle class and Mm -hmm. it's it's fascinating as an historian of like black culture that like I've spent all these years in school researching stuff that most people don't even know are like things that are <laughs> out here and been sitting in American culture for two, three hundred years in some instances. So yes. <laughs> and I think for me that ties back into this article with um, his point number four about encouraging ensembles to commission because I feel yeah. like if you're really trying to like dig into some of the what he's referring to as the non-majoritarian experiences out there like you kind of need organizations to invest in contemporary composers of color and other marginalized groups who are interested in telling their stories in these contexts otherwise it's just it's not going to be something to which people have access whatsoever i think there has to be like a different kind of a dedication to unearthing these stories and then centering them in the work that we're doing not just things for like february or october but Mm -hmm. like this is american culture like this is a part of who we are as americans and and being bold enough to do this all year every year you know not having it be a one and done kind of a situation not having it be about a a single event but instead sort of making this about the dna of your organization's artistic praxis but i think we are a a really long way from that making sense Mm -hmm. to a lot Mm -hmm. of folks yeah yeah the discussion about like parts of the black experience that seem like so specific for us also brings me to the number five the the make decolonization and explicitly foregrounded part Mm -hmm. of cultural Mm -hmm. policy Mm -hmm. like is someone who used to work in like the office that would give like city arts grants like you become aware of just how much like policy that is baked into our our cities into our states into philanthropy into <laughs> like <laughs> grant funding like so much of it is is there like and folks not really having a policy or a view around like no this should be the standard yeah. like this is yeah. like to make sure we're representing everybody or to I remember it just being so much work to explain why, like, actually this program doesn't need to look just like XYZ major theater, regional mm-hmm. theater, major mm-hmm. orchestra to be valid. Like, actually, we need to make it part of our policy to, like, fund a diverse, like, set of, of genres, of art forms, of even organizational structures, mm-hmm. like there shouldn't 
be there the, there's these barriers that are like very much baked into the to the way we do things and I love that like he specifically says that like curators must live like a decolonized life as well I was just like ooh that's a challenge that's a challenge <laughs> so we're also talking about who we're hiring and like what their viewpoint mm-hmm. what their viewpoint is like do they see anything that's like not a European art form or like mm-hmm. Euro-centered as being other? Like, are they already approaching it from from that view? Cause that's gonna obviously like trickle down into all, what all the rest of us see as well. So like really making it policy, like you can create clauses or policies that say you have to do this, you have to fund or this m- amount of your funding has to go to indigenous peoples mm-hmm. or like this amount of funding has to go towards emerging creators and artists or like there are there are ways to do that and then within doing that not falling into the whole meritocracy thing and yeah. the whole mm-hmm. yeah and yeah oh. no well i was just going to say um that what's so interesting in in this article is that the way that he frames oh an, an idea that I've had um, that I I haven't been able to articulate since before reading this article, which is not doing all of those things that you just talked about, Paige, really has led to this sort of idea of exclusion as identity, mm. which he sort of frames as an addiction that's mm-hmm. sort of leading to the mm-hmm. impoverishment of the field. Which Ooh. I wanna, I mean, right? <laughs> because like when I first started working in opera, it definitely like you know, you know, I was working in marketing, and it's like okay, so we're gonna do this opera. Okay, we just did it like eight years ago. So here's some of the materials that we used for that, and da 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 da. And in my head, I'm like, wait, you just did this eight years ago, like. In my mind, like in my theater mind, I'm like, so you just did this and you're just doing it again? It. <laughs> <laughs> like, what do you mean? Like, and then like, as if there's only, like in the whole of human history, only, you would think only 50 operas have been written. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Less than that, shoot, you would think it was 20, somewhere yeah. around. <laughs> exactly. If, uh, the... This is it. <laughs> and it just seems to me that like, eventually, like, how is it that, like, unless you are using exclusion as your identity or you're, like, actually addicted to it, how is it that you can, like, sit there and you can watch the same opera every five years? Per, yes, with a different cast, with different costumes, with, you know, mm-hmm. different, you know, staging. H- how can you do that? <laughs> you, you know what I think part of, challenge like it just must get just so boring (laughs) i yes (laughs) it's just weird it's just a weird when there's just so much out there there's so many people we could be tapping into so many different styles so many different genres so many different you know, it's it's like people who don't want to season their food. 
<laughs> like maybe try this with some Lowry's. It's like that okra video. Like, did we put any salt and pepper on the chicken? <laughs> but I'm sorry, I keep, I keep interrupting you. No, no, that that's. I mean, it's it's a valid point, right? And I I think some of this, and this ties into what you were saying, Paige, about sort of the structure of the funding. Um, Professor Lewis has on here diversify school music programs, and when I was at Mellon. I did a little research project and I was looking for the least diverse fields in the humanities mm. and they were art history and music theory. And uh. this, and so where do people who have these degrees end up working? Museums, opera companies, orchestras, right? I think if you, if you're taking it all the way back, the lack of diversity is as an input means that like the output is also not going to be diverse, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. these people are, so it's already a small group. People have been exposed to like very similar things. Part of my uh, graduate school research has been on the history of conservatories. And part of what you find is that nothing's really changed in conservatory education in the last hundred years. Like it stayed um, sort of static in a way that very few fields have. So then you think about the combination of the field not being diverse, they're not learning things that feel like very cutting edge. It seems like, yeah, we have to go to the same 20 operas over and over because we're also talking to what we think to be a really small group of people. And I think that's also contributing to it. And I Mm -hmm. will um, amend slightly Professor Lewis's suggestion that we diversify school music programs and say we fund robustly the ones that are getting it right. Mm -hmm. You know, when Mm -hmm. I was at Mellon, where money wasn't going was into, like, uh, music programs at minority-serving institutions, right? Like, that was not... The the huge three- and four-million-dollar grants weren't going to HBCUs. They weren't going to HSIs, right? They were going Mm -hmm. to the usual suspects. And I think that also adds to the circularity of it. Like, we're not going to get out of this until somebody just says, you know what, there's a different mode that we need to take in our our approach to stuff. And, And this is kind of... It's kind of where we are. We can't talk to new audiences if there's not new energy in mm-hmm. in the space, right? And that's been very, very slow. Makes it hard to attract young people to the space when mm-hmm. they're looking and seeing something that's not reflecting them, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So. Absolutely. Yeah, I've recently like seen some conversations on on Twitter, and it's something that I think gets referenced regularly, especially just where popular music is at right now, especially forms, genres that primarily are performed by black people, but talk about like, like, it's clear that the musicians these days aren't learning in the church. (laughs) 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 That they didn't sit down with the choir director, with the organ players saying, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, that's that's not it, that's not. And and just talking about why that is and like pointing out that like it's one of those spaces where like some of our like community like master musicians and not just musicians but people who are like well versed in being music directors mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. uh what's the like what's the word i'm looking for like masters of ceremony mm-hmm. in, in a way mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you're learning like 
the art form, but you're also learning how to like make it work or make it like excellent to our audience yeah. as well. Like that kind of, and, and, and somebody, you know, some folks were saying that, or responses in the in the conversation were like, yeah, our arts programs in in our schools need to be more well funded. Like that's like that's the key. And it's like ah, that's yes, but also it's still not hitting like that specific like cultural knowledge that is like passed down in these almost like apprenticeship kind of situations, or you know how the learning how the art actually works in the real world like how mm -hmm. to make the audience like feel what you're what you're doing and it's not just playing the notes that are on the page really well like it goes so so far beyond that and that's really what people were getting to was saying that like it seems like these performers these days were growing up in the church and mm -hmm. that's what they mean that just like it's the like maybe you technically have a good song but like people aren't taking seriously like how that works mm -hmm. in with an audience yeah. like how that that's a completely different knowledge from just how to play your instrument well sure. how to sing well like as they the church mothers would say like did it it didn't have any anointing they didn't, they didn't, they didn't put any oil on it it's missing oil. the oil like it's missing the oil where's the oil like yeah i i think about that a lot i was also watching um uh a film the black roots of salsa recently that was so fascinating and i think about like folks like that who a lot of the time like our our experts through like literally learning on street corners mm -hmm. and like being experts at like their cultural music and i'm just like why why can't our cultural institutions be reflective of all of this mastery like there is there's just so much people who are people who are historians who are yeah, historians in addition to being musicians and there's just mm -hmm. like so, I, I got a little sad that there's like just so much that people are are missing out on when those things are not made apart or when they're just like reduced to, here's the here's the fun international section or here's the where we bring in the, the people of color for the, for the fun little salsa section <laughs> and you're missing just all this stuff about the indigenous rhythms it comes from you missing all this cultural context like yeah you do better <laughs> you know there well one i'm always curious about why you aren't curating more of what i watch at home because <laughs> you always come when you're talking about seeing something i'm like where is she seeing all this stuff? Um, <laughs> but I, I do feel like, and you know, if you think back to some of the guests we've had on the podcast, there's a whole aesthetic education that comes from being a part of the black church that mm -hmm. is kind of unparalleled. And I feel like, especially on the music side, there's no way to listen to like Jennifer Hudson or Jasmine Sullivan and not sort of be taken with the fact there there is something so unique going on with the mm -hmm. approach we grew up calling it someone's ear right just mm -hmm. how good someone's ear is from being asked to inhabit music in a very different way that you know growing up singing at church and then singing at school how different an experience it felt 
you know, mm-hmm. like it was mm-hmm. felt completely external at school. Like this is about something on a sheet music, delivering what you're seeing on the page, as opposed to being in church where there was frequently no sheet music. And instead yeah. it was just mm-hmm. about how are you as a human embodying this thing and, and sharing what you feel through song. And I don't think that there is nearly enough of that in a lot of our um, academic institutions in terms of what they are asking of people right Mm -hmm. like that that doesn't seem like it's the exercise whatsoever and it's something that i think is super hard to capture in a classroom setting well you know i think because it goes back to when we were talking about that (laughs) that stupid article about the war on classical music (laughs) (laughs) a few episodes ago (laughs) go back in the archives and find that but just the the idea that like i think people just don't quite understand is that like music isn't necessarily something that you learn or something that you do music is who we are yeah it's just a part of us You know, and some of those things, you know, we can try and articulate. Um, but mm, so often it's just you have to, like, bring people into the space and just let them do what they do yeah. and just yeah. let them be who they are. Yeah. And that's ultimately, you know, I think, you know, when we get to the last point, change your consciousness. Um, just stop. <laughs> just just <laughs> this idea that, like, you know, oh, we're going to, like, come in and, like, like you do what you do. And and, and, and the, where did you go to school? And, and you know, are, did you learn how to play this instrument in this specific way or learn how to sing in this specific way? And therefore, like, you are you are valid and you have that Juilliard stamp of approval or whatever. <laughs> no, it's just, like, invest in folks and let them come into your space and just let them be who they are. Yeah. Let them create the sounds that they that come out of them that come out of their culture and that's how we're gonna do this that's how we're gonna get this done is just by like taking away like these fake barriers that don't actually exist yeah away with the barriers away with the barriers <laughs> away with the barriers <laughs> but i guess we can leave it there Obviously, mm-hmm. this is going to be an ongoing conversation <laughs> that we will be having for the rest of our lives. So I hope you like it. <laughs> but we will be right back with our wonderful conversation with uh, costume designer extraordinaire, Mr. Trevor Bowen. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Score, where it is my honor and pleasure to introduce our guest for today, Trevor Bowen. (laughs) Trevor is a costume designer based in the Twin Cities. After graduating from West Virginia University with a master in fine arts, uh, he was then employed in multiple roles in Long Wharf Theater Costume Shop, beginning as an intern while still in graduate school. In 2012, he moved to the Twin Cities to initially continue work as a design assistant and then moved into becoming a full-time costume designer in 2013 with the Pillsbury House Theater production of The Road Weeps, The Well Runs Dry. Since then, he's worked at various Twin Cities and regional houses, including Oslo Rep, Guthrie Theater, Mixed Blood Theater, Seattle Children's Theater, The Jungle Theater, Steppenwolf Theater, Children's Theater Company, and Fifth Avenue. 
Uh, opera credits at Minnesota Opera, yay, include fellow travelers, The Fix, and Albert Herring. And also at Glimmerglass Opera Festival, The Knock. Welcome, Trevor. Yay, welcome. <laughs> Thank you for having me, y'all. It's good to be here. Hello. <laughs> Uh, so you're the first costume designer that we've had on the show. And so I just really was curious to ask you just how did you get into costume design? How did that all start? Were you a very, you know, fashion forward kid? Um, <laughs> how, where did that inspiration come from to, to get into costuming? Uh, well, I, th I think it started off with sort of being fascinated by my grandma making clothes for herself. Uh, and I, I just remember her, like we spent a lot, spent a, my sister and I spent a lot of time with her. I remember her cutting out a pants pattern on the floor of her living room. And I, and it was a tissue pattern, tissue paper pattern. And I was just fascinated by it. I was like, those don't look like the pants that grandma wears, but she's making, like, I just had no idea kind of making the leap between sort of a 2D pattern to a realized three-dimensional thing, you know? And I, I remember asking her about, about it and she was like, Oh, well, you know, it's easy to do this thing, blah, blah, blah. It's, you know, at the machine. Um, and I told her I wanted to make uh, a CD player holder, like a Walkman holder. <clears throat> and she was like, good, you can make it yourself. And I was like, but grandma, I use these patterns. Like, I, I, you know, life lesson, right? And like, she was like, yeah, well, you do, you do it like this. And she showed me how to kind of drape, you know, another fabric over the CD player and just sort of make a pattern from that. And like, that was my first little project. Um, and then from there, you know, that kind of coincided at the same time, I really was enjoying fashion and specifically like um, uh, style with Elsa Clinch on CNN uh, and just sort of seeing a world that I just did not know or really understand. But I, I knew... loved style with Elsa Clinch. That was my Thank Saturday you. morning. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. And, and, you know, and then from there, it moved from, um, from style with Elsa Clinch to, um, oh my goodness, what was the show? It was with Tim Blanks on uh, E! Network, like in junior high school. Anyway, mm -hmm. yeah. so yeah, when that wasn't on anymore, I just went over to E! Anyway, and I, what I was seeing were people who were very strong, very confident, very clear, uh, very emotive, very, and, and seeing that there was a theatricality to the show that I really enjoyed. Um, and things just started to merge. And now when I look back, I'm like, oh, uh, I was also in church a lot. So there was sort of like this merger of sort of this commerciality, theatricality that happens on the runway with the theatricality of uh, like a black Southern Baptist church, in addition to sort of, you know, beginning to speak in front of people for whatever, you know, for like Boy Scouts or something. So all these things sort of swirled around and I was like, Oh, this is, I think theater is a thing. Um, and and there's there's kind of something very interesting about it, um, about sort of you could go to these these fantasy places in a way, you know, and, and make people happy, you know. Um, so I started off as an actor in high school and I was really excited about performing. Um, and going on into uh, undergrad, I realized uh, we had a show, <laughs> we did a show and I was on stage and I, I, I was like, I don't like that lights are in my face, that I cannot see anyone and I'm saying things out into the dark and no one is responding. Um, 
I still don't know what that was. Maybe it might have been a panic attack or something, but um, our next assignment, we had revolving assignments and the next assignment was wardrobe crew on Tartuffe. So I was backstage uh, during the show and then I would handle, you know, laundry, mending, um, you know, lint rolling, whatever uh, at the beginning of the show and, and at the end of the show. And I was just finding that this is really magical and this is really cool. And there are always two shows going on when you watch any sort of theatrical presentation, right? There's sort of the front, front of house business and then there's the backstage business. And I actually really enjoyed no one knowing that I was, you know, running from stage left to stage right to help with these quick changes and moving shoes and like adjusting a skirt or like adjusting a bustle before someone went out and knowing that that uh, made the performance um, um, it was in support of something, you know, like I don't, I didn't need to be in the front of the thing. I needed to be behind the scenes, um, kind of creating that sense of the magic, that part of the magic. Um, so like from there, it was sort of like, oh, this is cool. So I got more into fashion um, and in undergrad, we didn't have a costume design program. So it was like really the director really showing me things and kind of, kind of working with the tools he had, which is sort of a fashion obsessed person who wanted to do costume design, who really didn't understand sort of the techniques and principles of kind of constructing a story and constructing sort of um, a realistic, and I use that term kind of very broadly, because it's, you know, all has to do with our given circumstances, but like um, creating something that feels very realistic, you know, with someone's garments. So, so I mean, that's, that's it. That's like, from there, I was like, I was sold, let's do it. Um, and then under, and then going on to grad, graduate school, that was really a place where it sort of started to really come together. And I started to understand the principles of design um, and understanding what, you know, harmony and rhythm and balance and composition are. And actually learning that you never really master any of those things. Like at this point in my life, I'm like, that, and that's, that's kind of the best part because it doesn't ever get dull. You know, it's every project is its own challenge and is its own learning opportunity. Oh, wow, that's beautiful. Because <laughs> it's true, you know, and I, I find, you know, I, um, you know, I started off as a singer um, and gave it up for, you know, a fairly long time. <laughs> and then the other night I was just felt compelled to pick up my guitar for whatever reason. And I was just like, wow, there's just still so much to learn <laughs> and to relearn, um, you know, especially when you're, you've been out of practice with something for, for a while. I guess, Mess, I'm curious, and like, did you have any, um, besides your, your grandmother, mentors or, or role models along the way? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, I just say, like, th these are people who, <laughs> and I'll try to be, I'll try to, but, talk about them very quickly because they're all like extremely important and probably still important um they absolutely are still important in my life but like um I think I think the first person um was Jesse Norman uh, and I'm not saying that because this is an opera podcast I'm saying that because I I have um a very in tune mom <laughs> and we grew up with three stations <laughs> so one of them was PBS and I, I remember very clearly. I, I don't remember what grade I was in, but I remember this performance. Um, Jesse was performing, Ms. Norman, I should say, was performing um, in Paris on Bastille Day. 
And I just remember us watching this performance where she is in this, um, uh, it's, a, it's a gown, it's this uh, Azadina Laya gown made out of the French flag. And you just sort of were singing outdoors in this beautifully draped thing that kind of covers her head and just sort of kind of trails off into, um, out of the, out of the uh, television frame. And I, I just remember thinking how majestic, how clear everything is, um, how, how much she kind of looks like the ladies in my family. I was like, oh, well, they could do that too, you know? <laughs> and there was just something so grand. I had just never seen um, a black person look that grand before and sort of all eyes on her. And I didn't even have words for it at the time, but I, I think, now, you know, there's just times when I think back to that and it's just like, that was everything to see that. Um, uh, um, Grace Jones, for sure. Like she scared the crap out of me the first time I saw her. Oh, yes. um, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, the first time was, it was either Conan or a View to a Kill. Anyway, but like, I, view I think to it was a View kill. to a Kill. I think I mean. it was View to a Kill. Yeah. Like she was so fierce in that movie. I think I didn't understand it when I was like nine, but like as an adult, it's like, oh my God. <laughs> right? Yes. I, I was living. And you know, also I will say, you know, uh, I might be mistaken, but I think uh, most, if not all of those clothes are also as Adina Laya. So she actually sort of had a different kind of like designer for her, her wardrobe. So she's wearing like, you know, runway couture well not runway but couture um throughout that film which was just so inspiring and seeing someone who who was 100% sensual 100% um feminine 100% masculine and there was and there was no there was something very undeniable there is something very undeniable about her presence you know anyway and I was just sort of I think as a kid as like a young gay black kid and not knowing any anything really about myself at that point, I was like, I understand, like I really understand this, and it's actually scary to me that I understand it because one, she's the villain, <laughs> and we're not supposed to like the villain. But I was I mean, like, debatable. he's like cooler than James. He's cooler than James Bond. I got exactly one hundred percent. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Roger um, Moore, like end of his career. No, no, no. That's Grace, Grace Jones' Jones's movie. Come on, yes. she's owning, owning it. Even when she, even when she dies, you're like, you're like, mm-hmm, that's a queen. That's how mm -hmm. a queen goes down. Yeah. You're like, like seriously. <laughs> Movie's oh. over, thank you. <laughs> this was fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, also, again, not because it's an opera podcast, but um, Denise Graves is amazing. And, um, and I got a chance to meet her uh, this summer at Glimmer Glass, and I, I was I was just awestruck. And she's she's one of the kindest people ever. Like she was just very very sweet um, and very patient with me. <laughs> uh, Tony Leslie James, costume designer. I think I, I just remember being. Um, I don't know, like you know, when you grow up in a spot that this is not. I hope I'm not too far away from the question page, but like um, when you grow up in a small town and kind of like the Southern Midwestern part of the United States. Um, and you and you probably, you're pretty sure you're the only one and you kind of the only one like your whole, your whole time that you live there, right? Um, I remember the first time that I like just sort of 
uh, found, understood dance and found out about dance and, fun, and found out sort of about um, an African, the African-American mode of dance is sort of where a lot of us, uh, a lot of kind of like our lives are told in a different way. Our stories are told in a different way. Um, I just remember reading Ebony and just sort of seeing Catherine Dunham and being like, I don't understand, but she's amazing. And then also um, watching like productions uh, by Alvin Ailey. And then the first time, and then also seeing um, Judith Jameson and then wondering where, like, where do these costumes come from? Um, and then learning that Tony Leslie James used to work there, but she also used to do soap operas. She's done film, she's on Broadway. She's done, it was just sort of like, wow. What, like, th th this is extraordinary. Like, and at the same time that was sort of happening when I was starting to understand costume design sort of as a profession, you know, it's not just sort of this person that appears with these clothes, that story, the depth of storytelling that they're doing is on this is on par, um, if not deeper sometimes, because it, it can help support a performer at the work that they're doing as well. And it was sort of like understanding sort of the, the, um, the similarities uh, of those two things and understanding that this is, a, this is a storyteller who is able to work in all of those modes very easily and very beautifully and very clearly. Um, uh, was just is is just astounding and is so inspiring still um and I also remember um just getting a chance to meet her and I remember running wardrobe on a show that she had designed at Long Wharf and we didn't really see each other that much but just sort of seeing a sister at Long Wharf and at that point I had already worked there for a few years had left and then come back to do this wardrobe gig for the for um I think it was Old Masters was a show but <clears throat> Just sort of seeing her her renderings and sort of the run sheets and all of this other stuff, I I felt so proud to be kind of the caretaker of of these things, you know. Um, it was like it was like this is I, this is amazing. And then she, I think she was back a season or two later, um, and I got a chance to very briefly assist her before I had to move on to something else. But it was just really cool to just to talk with her for a little bit. And yeah, anyway. But those, yeah, those are just a, a few people who are like, who I, I just hold very closely, uh, who aren't, you know, family. <laughs> or not that kind, you That's know, so blood family, I should say. <laughs> That's so real about somebody's like, even just like they're seeing their sketches and their run sheets and all that, making you want to be a good steward of their work. Because you're just like, wow, this was just so carefully considered from the beginning, I had a costume professor at Howard, uh, Reggie Ray, uh, may he rest in peace. Yes. Um, and his sketches were just like, whoa, like it made you wanna, I mean, he demanded excellence in the first place, but it especially wanted you to like keep your stuff together because you could just see like the beauty, the intricate like beauty of it from the, from the very beginning when he first put pen to paper. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh, Paige, I, can I tell you the first time I was in costume rentals here in town, Duffy Costume Rentals, um, I remember seeing a cape that he designed, and it's this, it is this, like, 20-some foot thing that's hanging from, like, the top rafters in stock, it touches the floor, 
And that sounds like, like something he made. Yeah. It, it was beautiful, <laughs> like hand painted. I and I and I have to tell you, anytime that I was in there and I had a little bit of time to sort of um, you know, not not do my work, <laughs> I, I would go to that section and just sort of like kind of pull the cape out because there was always just something new to see, whether it was sort of another a painted moments, a trimming, a little sparkle there. It was just it was beautiful. It's beautiful. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. I got to see if I got a hookup at the Guthrie who can let me in to see that. <laughs> and that's the, that's the thing that makes me miss being on stage because I want to wear a 20 point cape. Like, good Hello? God, that would be amazing. <laughs> yes. Uh. <laughs> so, one thing that I'm curious from your perspective so, you know, we've talked a bit about um, just sort of how your Blackness has sort of shaped your career. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, in this space, you know, there aren't a whole lot of us, um, you know, especially in opera and classical music. Um, and I'm just curious, like, do you feel as though, you know, um, in terms of, you know, more progressive issues, um, you know, do you think opera and classical music are behind the curve? And why do you think that is? And, and what do you think activism could look like um, in this space? Because I'm, I'm thinking about, um, a conversation I had with um, Alan Michael. Um, Alan Michael Jones, one of our, our resident artists during Albert Herring. And he, uh, the character he was originally playing was supposed to be like a cop. Um, and I remember he wasn't super comfortable with that in 2021 in Minneapolis. Um, I wonder why. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, you know, you know, he worked with the uh, with you and and with the directors and whatnot to sort of make some changes. So I'm just curious, you know, for you, what does activism look like in this space, or, or what could it look like? Mm. Well, I think you know the. I think the first part of that question, um, I think part of it is actually sort of being bold enough, and unfortunately, I don't like. I I, I hate that I have to say bold being bold. Um, about actually sort of doing what we purport to do, right? To tell to tell our stories as human folk. Um, but I think, you know, places being really, really clear and making it part of the culture that <clears throat> they, they really are telling stories of folks whose stories don't get to be told. It's sort of like we're in such a place of privilege to, to you know, do this thing that is entertainment, you know, um, and that provide that is also a service at the same time, or at least I kind of feel like what I do is, is somewhat of a service. Um, so I, I feel like being in a space specifically to offer that they're telling us, you know, telling like black queer stories and they're not tragic, you know, they, they don't end in someone dying. They don't end in a separation of a family or loved ones or whatever. There's a sense of joy, um, and I think there's a way to make those things that I, I don't know if opera really deals with very often. Like usually it feels like very much, and I my my opera experience is very limited. But it feels like the stories tend very they tend to go very negative. They're very sad. They're very tragic. And it's sort of like there's actually there's a whole other range of emotion that that we feel. So I think that's one way to do it. Um, I think the I think. The other way is to sort of be really clear and to be in a space that you don't feel that uh, that you're going to be reprimanded 
or there's going to be some retribution for speaking your mind. I think, you know, working with Alan Michael in particular on Albert Herring, that was, that was actually probably one of the more fun parts of the show. And that was, that, that was a pretty enjoyable, enjoyable experience from my end. But sort of when I came, I was like, of course, let's talk about it. Because I didn't feel, like, honestly, I didn't feel comfortable to bring up in the first place. I was like, this feel all of this feels weird. <laughs> and I was like, okay, here's the thing. You know, there's like, what, I don't know, 70 looks or something that need to be designed. I just need to, and, and like, not a lot of time to get it done. So let me just, <laughs> let me work on that. And then um, here we go. But I think when that opportunity came up, because it was an opportunity sort of actually like <clears throat> to keep telling the story and I, with regard with, to Albert Herring kind of broadly, um, to keep sort of working on a piece and setting it in a place that actually makes some sort of sense for the folk of the Twin Cities and beyond whomever watched this production. Um, that was kind of, that was kind of the good thing about the writing. I think the great thing that Alan Michael had the boldness to stand up and say, like, this is not, this is not what's in my body. You know, that's one thing that I can't ever do as a costume designer is really speak to someone's embodied experience. And the fact that he named it very clearly, and that was, and it was also an opportunity and it made it an opportunity to collaborate. So I think having the opera, the opera being in a space that they could do that, and there was no, there was no frustration. There was no, and there shouldn't have been anyway. We're trying to tell the best story possible. So that's how you do it. Absolutely. Um, and I think what we came up with was actually more interesting than, than what, what the original design called for, you know. That, I'm wondering like, what, what changes would you, would you like to see in opera or classical music especially, I mean, I think especially in regards to, to designers and designers of, of color specifically, um, maybe to have more, more positive experiences like, like that, where, you know, can be listening to, to people, performers' bodies or to the experiences in the room. Yeah. I, you know, I, I feel like sometimes that can start with sort of um, education. And I think that you know, start kind of starting off as a performer, there's a little bit of an advantage, I think, for me to sort of have a sense of what, what it means to be on stage. And I think sort of just as, as kind of a storytelling professionals, theater professionals, opera professionals, whatever, sort of having a sense of what everyone is doing, like, you, you know, just and having developing, hopefully, a respect and a sense for whatever what what components are going into this cake you know that we're kind of trying to create I think that's that starts there um I think it's also really important to maybe embrace people into the art form that aren't uh <laughs> that have really haven't been indoctrinated into sort of in sort of the the ways of opera the ways of theater I I don't have I don't have really any um, baggage or fingers crossed bad habits uh, with regard to opera design because I don't see I don't really see designing for opera differently from me designing a dance piece from me designing a contemporary thing for a commercial 
me working on a musical or a straight play where it's storytelling through cloth, you know? So I, I think that's another thing. There, I think it's also helpful to dispel sort of a sense of hierarchy that one, one art form is higher than another when there's no different. There, there are only different modes. That's all. That not one, not one is better. No one is better than any other, right? I think there's uh, sometimes if one does theater and opera or other art forms, there's a nimbleness that one has, and I speak specifically maybe to, to design, there's a nimbleness that I think uh, one needs to have if you're designing a musical or something where the timeline is much shorter than a traditional opera timeline is. So traditionally, you know, normally, regularly, I don't know, um, <laughs> allegedly, <laughs> opera design, you know, like you're kind of working a year or more out. Um, I don't think I've ever, done that when I worked on an opera. I don't think I've ever had a year to work on an opera. Uh, so I'm curious what that feels like. But I know that I need to be very kind of quick with decisions and quick in the room when we're interfitting. Um, and there's not really a lot of time to sort of uh, to maybe come up with a grand vision and then just sort of like implement that thing, you know, like plug it into the wall, let's go. Um, there's a sense of something that feels very kind of dead about all of that, <clears throat> you know, like you're just doing it and it's like, that's not, that's not the, the silhouette, that's not the, the person's body that you've sketched who's been cast in this role, they don't look anything like this rendering, but since you've already designed it here, that's what we're doing and it actually makes no sense whatsoever, you're like, remember everyone that, you know, the cast is cast for a reason, hopefully, right? And there's, there's a reason why this body, this voice has been cast. So anything that I can do to celebrate that body and that voice, so I can't really do so much to celebrate the voice, but um, the body, like I can totally celebrate that. And I can totally bring, hopefully whatever that person is bringing internally, hopefully I can bring that out in the costume through our conversation and through you know really paying attention to sort of how they move and things and checking in with someone. Um, I think opera hasn't had to sort of be, to kind of go back to, to your question, Rocky, I think, I don't think opera has ever really had the need to sort of kind of step forward and, and come more to our leadership role or really celebrate sort of the, the, the vastness of our, of our experience. It hasn't had to. It's often been a place where you come to us to become, to learn to learn how to be a person, to learn how to experience emotion, to learn what some ancient culture that may or may not have existed and is already someone's fantasy was, you know. I think there's been, there's a lot of truth that people put into something that is not real, <laughs> you know, and saying that this is how we, this is how we do things. And I'm like, but why? I have a lot of questions anytime I work on an opera and they're not necessarily, they have actually have nothing to do with maybe the story. It's sort of like how it's implemented sort of through the organization sometimes. I just don't really, and I'm like, you know, do we have to do it? Does it have to take this long to do this thing? Like, we're all here now. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so I, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think I went off the rails. But <laughs> no, yeah, no, no, I... <laughs> That resonates so much with me, but Lee, did you have a question? So looking forward, Trevor, do you have projects coming up that you are particularly excited about 
And if so, could you say a word or two about what it is that's exciting about the projects and maybe what in general inspires your creativity? There's one show in particular that I'm, um, one opera that I'm excited about and that's Champion coming up this spring, this next spring at Boston Lyric Opera, BLO. Uh, I'm excited about it because uh, uh, the team is, is really cool. It's, it's folks that I've worked with before um, that are that are really fierce storytellers um, and that have a depth and soul to their designs that I, that, that I really appreciate. And that challenge sort of my, well, whatever I'm doing, the clothes. Um, and our director, Timothy Douglas, is, is just fantastic and, and really thoughtful and creative. Um, so I'm excited to sort of be back, to be back there and to actually um, kind of do a fully designed show. Um, the last time I was there, it was a remount of Fellow Travelers. Um, <clears throat> so it's kind of really just, you know, kind of put it, putting things back together in kind of a slightly different way at, at, for that, for that uh, project. So I'm really excited to kind of create this world and the world that we're creating is, um, you know, that of, um, I feel like for me is a queer icon. I don't know if, if he would ever say this, it's, it's about Emil Griffith who was a championship boxer in the 1960s. And um, you, you learn that uh, he's from the Virgin Islands and he sort of, the story kind of it's really I think is really a, a lovely kind of um, dip into his world, you know, and just getting a sense of sort of the duality that he was living with and kind of acknowledging or not acknowledging um, uh, the intensity at which he lived life. Uh, it's it's really it's fun to to design a wardrobe for a life, you know, not necessarily for a moment in someone's life. We're really we're really seeing this person as a young person, as a slightly young, as a young adult, and then as an older adult, as an elder. Um, so it's been, it's, it's been just really exciting to sort of go into some black queer history, some black New York queer history to understand what um, Emil did and just sort of uh, to understand this is someone who, who, and I will just say this, which is extremely fascinating about uh, the man, he was a milliner, he was a hat designer, as well as this championship boxer. And I, it's just so fascinating for me to have someone who, who can do extreme, you know, who was able to kind of really work in a really nuanced, minute way with his hands in one world, and then knock someone out cold with those same hands. I think it's fascinating, the sense of sort of dexterity and power uh, and sort of what that means with regard to both of those, um, <clears throat> both of those fields, right? Anyway, it's, it's, it's really cool. Uh, the music's really cool. Uh, and, and I'm really excited to be a part of it. Um, yeah. And I, and I think too, you know, that's, that's what draws me to, to stories. Like if there's a really a depth to the storytelling and, you know, honestly, I think at this point, if it feels hard, <laughs> I should probably be doing it because that's the only way I, you know, I'll, I'll kind of be better at what I do and be able to kind of work ex objectively and not sort of, um, it's, it's sometimes easy to kind of like, you know, press that cruise control and I don't ever want to be there. Um, but if I'm always in a space where I'm constantly challenged, uh, that's the best. 
I will also say Blacklight, um, this next iteration, this next version, this part two of Blacklight with Alana Morris Van Tassel, who is a, an amazing storyteller um, based here in town. Um, also a choreographer, also a dancer, storyteller, but uh, we got a chance to, to do the, the first portion of this in March uh, over at the Cole Center. And I got a chance to work with lovely Paige the righteous page, so that was, that's awesome. Um, and and I think too, you know, to sort of be in concert with another artist as they're creating a piece, and kind of and kind of um, this may speak to a question that was earlier. It was actually really interesting to sort of be in a space where we're actually sort of um, we're working um, parallel, you know, in a way. Uh, she's ahead. <laughs> she's our leader <laughs> but sort of be in a space where sort of like I'm able to sort of come in and sort of see the progress and sort of help really sculpt um the wardrobe as she's sort of sculpting the shape of the piece and sculpting her movements it's such a different process than I've ever than anything that I've ever been a part of um and there's there's a very there's a soulfulness I keep saying that but I think that's what draws me to the things that I do there's a soulfulness to this particular piece um, that is that is intriguing to me, that is unknown to me, that is edifying to me, that is uh, entertaining. That I feel like I kind of do some things that I don't ever do uh, in I, in other parts of my uh, work life. So I, I really appreciate sort of uh, how how we how we've come to know each other and how we've uh, gotten to work together. So I am looking forward to that, to this next iteration of this, uh, of this series with her. I'm really grateful. Now that you've, you know, been working in this field for, for a long time, um, you know, and talking about, you know, upending the status quo and, you know, asking why, you know, when younger people, especially younger folks of color, um, come in and come up and they want to be designers and 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 work in this industry. What is some of the advice um, that you give to them? I think have a clear as much as one can, because I, I think this shifts to uh, the older that you get or the, the more that you work. Um, have a sense of your self-worth and, and have a clear understanding of what you're able to do and what you cannot do. Um, what you want to take on within um, the purview of a project uh, and, and to know the pace at which you need to sort of, uh, that, that you need to, you know, make a decision as to do something or not, you know, wh whether to do, to take on a project or not, and not to ever be ashamed of those things. That's, that's not a negative. That's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing when you don't sign the contract right away when the production manager kind of <laughs> sends it to you and they're like, we need this, you know, yesterday. <laughs> like things take the time that it takes and understanding that um, that your health is more important than any job will ever be, you know. So I would say that first. Um, I think the next thing is have a have a sense of your aesthetic. Like we all have things that we just sort of we like that we gravitate towards and I, I mean that in every sense that aesthetic goes that kind of goes across what kind of foods you like 
uh, what colors, of course, what kind of music, what recreational activities you do. Like, do you like to go dancing? Do you go for a walk? Do you like to watch TV? I like to do all of those. <laughs> you know, have a clear sense of what that is because, you know, the industry at its best, when it's at its best, you're really able to kind of communicate um, uh, aesthetically. If someone asks you to do a job or if you're, you're interviewing for a job, know that in this kind of an industry, your aesthetic is what is really gonna sell and what is really gonna make you um, unique. That's what makes you unique. And the fact that whether you are in a position, you're working in a way that you're kind of constantly translating and, and reiterating your aesthetic on, upon something, cool. If you're in a place where if you prefer to work in such a way that it's constantly sort of like really changing that and you're actually not, it's actually not about your aesthetic uh, when it actually is like to understand sort of where that stuff lives. And if you're going away from that understanding, maybe I don't know so much about this kind of dance. I do like dance, but maybe I, I don't know a waltz. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I think having a closeness of yourself, you know, in every regard is going to help because it, it's, this is an industry that I think can be quite harsh. And I don't think that's going to be something that changes overnight. In the, and we're in this time of kind of clarity, change, and momentum. I think that's something that's not going to change in the next five years, unfortunately. Um, so having a clear sense that, that of what you need, what you want, how you work, how you live, how you see, how you see the world, um, it, it, that's going to that's gonna edify you against a lot of kind of the, um, uh, let's say a bad word. <laughs> Rocky, I just looked over my head. I was like, don't do it. Don't do you it can, I can bleep it out. Say, what you're, <laughs> no, no. say what's on your heart. It's, say what's it's on your heart. <laughs> I just had to look at you. I was like, I got grounded for a second. <laughs> <laughs> it's just sort of, you know, kind of the, some of the mess that's in the industry. I think I know what you were going to say. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I hear that. Absolutely. You've got to have that strong sense of yourself. But I'm looking at the clock and I know we uh, we are running out of time um, pretty quickly, but I just, there are any last questions on anyone's heart? Well, I really want to thank you so much, Trevor, for being with us and just for everyone out there um, coming up um, in addition to Blacklight. Um, which we talked about earlier, and champion at Boston Lyric Opera uh, this May. Um, Trevor will also be working on his wonderful costumes, will be a part of Something Happened in Our Town at Children's Theater Company in February, uh, Redwood at the Jungle Theater um, here in Minneapolis in March, Ride the Cyclone at McCarter Theater in May, and the Watsons go to Birmingham uh, at Seattle Children's Theater in May as well. Um, did I miss anything? No, that's more than enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, there's, there's lots, lots of I'd lots of opportunities <laughs> to go see your to go see your beautiful work. And we just want to thank you so much um, for joining us today. And um, we will. Oh, and and TrevorBone.com. Uh, Is that right? Did I get that right? <laughs> TrevorBoneDesign.com. TrevorBoneDesign.com, my bad. And go visit TrevorBoneDesign.com for more about Trevor. Um, so thank you once again, and I hope we get to do this again soon.
Oh, right on. Thank you all so much. Absolutely. Have a great rest of your day. You too. You too. You. And we will be right back you. all with uh, Pure Black Joy. Woo! And we're back with Pure Black Joy. Hit it, Paige. Peanut butter jelly yes, time. Yes, Peanut yes, butter yes, jelly yes, time. Yes, Peanut butter yes, jelly. Yes, Peanut yes, butter yes, jelly. Yes, Peanut butter yes, jelly. What's your face? Fall back. Peanut butter jelly. That's the sound that just comes out of me when you do that. That's who I am. Express yourself. Yes, no barriers. Get rid of those barriers. Um, yeah, so I don't know. It's cold. There's not a whole lot that's making me super happy this week, I have to admit. Um, you know, my dry skin. <laughs> that's not making me happy. But, well, okay. So last time we talked about Michelle Young, you weren't here, Lee, but do you are you familiar? So Michelle Young, she for those of you who are not familiar, she is this year's bachelorette. She's a black woman from right here in the Twin Cities. She grew up in Woodbury. I think she teaches fifth grade in like Burnsville. Oh. Yeah, right. Hey. She's a former D one basketball star. Word. I know. And she, she played high school basketball. Um she was like the runner up for like Minnesota Miss Basketball Player of the Year or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and y'all, she's great. <laughs> she's great. <laughs> and now her season started and she's just funny and smart and cool. I think probably the best bachelorette we've had since really? Rachel Lindsay. Just super empathetic. Like last night on the show she was sitting there she was talking to this man and he was like I want to take a picture in my mind of this moment so I can memorize you and and dream about you and she just looked at him and she was like sir that is terrible (laughs) (laughs) that's nasty why don't say that to me did you look that up on the internet (laughs) and he was just like uh 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 (laughs) but she's great and I would say, by and large, the the men that they've picked for her are pretty unremarkable. Oh, well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There is one who is also from Minneapolis. His name is Joe. And... His name is Joe Siri. His name is Joe. Siri said, what's the T? Okay, thank you, Siri. His name is Joe. And apparently he's from Minneapolis. They went to high school at the same time. He was like Mr. Basketball Player of the Year. What? So they knew of each other, but I guess they had never met. And a few years ago, he slid into her DM, or she slid into his DM. Oh, oh, okay. Yes, and they were messaging back and forth, and then he ghosted her. He just stopped, he's like, left her on red, stopped replying. And then, like a cis straight man, had the audacity to come on her season of The Bachelor. <laughs> that is how he <laughs> and, <laughs> and then get out of the limo. He was the last one to come out of the limo. And he's like, hi, I'm Joe. I'm also from Minneapolis. Like, So, you know, we don't have to worry about like moving to different cities. Like, I'm looking forward to going home together. And she was like, hold up. <laughs> Do I know you? And he was like, hmm. I don't know. Oh, and started to walk into the house, and she was like, "Is your last name Coleman?" And he was like, 
Mm-hmm. And she's like, so you're the the one who goes who goes to me, the Bachelorette. Okay, well, we're gonna talk about this. <laughs> and then they did, and you know, they worked it out. And he was like, I, I'm a bad communicator now. I'm in therapy. Blah 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 blah. But then they got together last night. They went on a basketball date, and like he was very much in his element. And it was like, okay, he's cute. (laughs) (laughs) This could work. (laughs) I like this. And he got all the roses. Also, speaking of the roses, my husband's company. They're they're they filmed part of the um, the season here in Minneapolis. His company provided the roses. Oh, okay. Yes. 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 Roses by Dennis. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. So you know, if you watch the show, when they come to the Twin Cities, look out for for my husband's roses. <laughs> so anyway, but Michelle, she's great. I'm very much enjoying the season of a show that obviously is you know objectively stupid, but <laughs> but in these these cold. Cold October months, fall months. It's, it's giving me a measure of joy. And to see this black woman out there shining, where the outfits they are putting her in, they spent some money okay. on this season. Okay. She looks good. They have somebody back there who knows how to do a black woman's hair and makeup. I was just going to ask, because you know they've had black women on reality shows looking yeah. they got someone. Way. They got someone for her. Amen. And she Amen. is coming down. They like when when it's the rose ceremony, or whatever. The this, this long staircase that she has to come down, and she's just glowing and shining. They're putting her in beautiful jewel tones that look incredible on her skin. Just Michelle for the win. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle Love for the win. It. So that's my fear. Well, I guess our other pure black joy, yes. I'm happy to introduce that um, our Minnesota Opera Impact team has a new member, Samuel Phillips. Who is the new Access and Civic Engagement Director. Ooh. Yes. Oh, I like this. Love that. Sounds fun. Yeah. Right? Right? <laughs> Very excited to have Samuel, who has actually already been a part of Minnesota Opera, um, part of the staging staff. And so we kind of and (laughs) yep was just like thank you for joining us now so i believe is also a twin cities uh Mm -hmm. native and yeah we're just excited to have him absolutely Mm -hmm. yeah so i mean do we want to talk about a little bit about what samuel's gonna do that's a great idea yeah Uh, let's do it um so he'll be leading the company's efforts around Access, and we draw the term access here pretty broadly, ranging from, you know, socioeconomic access to um, disability access, um, gender orientation, sexual orientation, ethnicity, age, all of the above, and also doing a lot of work with our public-facing programming. And Samuel has just a tremendous amount of experience as a producer, an educator. Um, he was a double bassist in orchestras for a period, and he's also been a stage manager, and that's a highly prized skill set from mm-hmm. my perspective. So we are super excited 
to have him on the team. And he's also just a, a fascinating, interesting, generous person. So we're we're looking forward. Welcome aboard, Samuel. I yes. Hope, <laughs> hope you know what you've gotten into. But <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure sure listeners out there will be meeting Samuel sooner rather than later. I was just gonna say, yep, yeah. yep, yep. Happy yep. to know on very reliable sources that he will be moving <laughs> in front of a microphone very very soon. Yes. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, shout out Samuel. We can't wait. For you to start we're so excited to have you a part of the team and i think that's where we're gonna leave it for this episode um thank you all so much for listening thank you so much for tre- to trevor bowen for joining us today um that Yay. was a fabulous conversation hoped everyone enjoyed themselves um what else oh yeah oh yes election day yes yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, Election Day, up. November 2nd, next Tuesday. Get out there. Yeah. Or, well, I guess this tomorrow, because this right. is coming out right. on Monday. <laughs> this is coming out on the 1st. That's right. So, yeah, tomorrow. Get out there. Make your voice heard if you haven't voted early already. Probably, if you haven't gotten your ballot in, I would imagine this probably isn't the... <laughs> you might want to go down there, put on your mask tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, I'm just going to say this because I'm a little biased, but um, for all my Virginia friends out yes. there, yes. I know the choices in front of you are not ideal, <laughs> but, but please make, please go out there and, and yeah. actually, uh, you know, cast your ballot um, because if anything we've learned in the last five years it's that every vote counts every every single vote counts and you cannot count on other people your friends your family your co-workers your neighbors to do this work for you it is up to each and every one of us to go out there and get s word done (laughs) 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 and make the world a better place so get off your butts and go do that and that goes for everyone, not just Virginians, but, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so with that said, um, oh, yes, reviews. Write us a review. Yeah. Go on mm-hmm. Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm. Five stars. Do that. Remember. Five stars. Yeah. I swear to God, five stars. <laughs> five stars. With some I, words. I have not checked <laughs> lately to see if we got more. Thank you if we did. But five stars, words. <laughs> do it <laughs> um, also subscribe on your favorite podcatcher of choice and share a, share share our, our 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 beautiful little show um, with all of your little friends um, we work really hard on it and <laughs> we are excited for this um, community that we're cultivating oh and also um, write to us yeah. Yeah. Opera, yeah. or the score at mnopera.org um, that's our email and uh, we'd love to hear from you. And we might just read your letter out on the air. I might just make one up to read so that people start using that email address. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, but yeah, before we go, any any words of wisdom? <laughs> no. The look on your face, Lee. Oh, my God. <laughs> bundle up. How about that? Moisturize. Bundle up. Don't go out there looking ashy. All right. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you in two weeks. Bye, Bye America. Bye. Love you. And India. <laughs> <laughs> Love you. Bye. <laughs>